Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. Well, if you'll take your, remain standing, take your Bibles, turn, if you will, to James chapter 5. We're winding the book of James down. It's a, it's a snail's pace, but we're getting there. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18 is where we're at this morning. So if you'll follow along as I read our text, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, beginning now in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. It was late spring, almost the first of summer, and Don and Betty, a young Christian married couple, were excited to welcome their third child, a son, into the world and into their young family. Everything seemed fine with the baby, so they left the hospital and took him home to meet his older brother and sister. But shortly after arriving home, the baby was unable to keep anything down. In fact, every time they fed him, he vomited and had severe diarrhea. So they changed the formula, but that didn't work. So they changed the formula again, and then again, and then again until there was nothing left to try. They even tried goat's milk, but nothing worked, and the baby was losing weight and getting weaker and weaker by the day. He went from uh, well over seven pounds to four pounds in just a matter of a week. And so they took him to the best pediatrician in town who immediately admitted him to the hospital The doctor canceled all of his remaining appointments and then spent the entire day with the baby. Don and Betty's church family was aware of what was happening, and they were fervently praying for the baby's healing. And the doctor ran every test he knew to run. He also consulted with UCLA and several other major medical centers trying to find some answers, but no one had any suggestions beyond what he was already doing. And the doctor told the anxious parents that there was one more test he wanted to perform, but he wasn't sure the baby could survive it. 
Well, the decision was made to run the test, and the baby made it through, but the doctor still didn't have any answers. They didn't know what was wrong, and they had absolutely run out of options. And so the doctor told Don and Betty that their son was in such a weakened state that he didn't know if the baby was going to make it. He had done everything that he knew to do. There was nothing more that he could do. It was now completely out of his hands. But Don and Betty were not going to give up hope. And so they called their pastor and asked that he and the elders come and anoint the baby with oil and pray for him, which they did. And the very next day, the baby began to take formula and was able to keep it down. Same thing happened the next day, and he began to get stronger. And so after two to three days, he was able to go home where he continued to get stronger and stronger. And my younger brother, David, went on to grow and develop and live a normal life, married, had a family, and after 30 years in law enforcement, retired and began a second career. And he and his wife are now enjoying being grandparents. You see, my mother and father took God at his word. And they had the faith to call for the pastor and the elders to come and anoint their dying son with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith saved the one who was sick, and the Lord raised him up. I mean, this is a great example of exactly uh, what James is speaking about in our text this morning. But let's remember the context in which this was written. Last week, we began looking at this final section in James' letter, and we We begin looking at verses 13 to 18, the theme of which is the place and power of prayer in the believer's life. And in these verses, James begins by commanding prayer for three situations. And of course, the Bible teaches us to pray continually and faithfully at all times, but James addresses three particular occasions that call for prayer, suffering and cheerfulness in verse 13, sickness in verses 14 and 15. And then in verses 16 to 18, James encourages believers to confess their sins to one another and pray for each other, and he uses the prophet Elijah's intercession for rain as an example of fervent and effective prayer. Well, last week we looked at verse 13, where James referred to two ends of the spectrum of life, suffering and cheerfulness. He said in verse 13, if you'll notice, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Well, to sum up, to sum it up, in verse 13, James is telling us that no matter what life brings our way, whether suffering or cheerfulness, all of life should be lived with a Godward and God-dependent focus. And so in times of suffering, we're to pray, and in times of joy and and happiness, we're we're to praise. And as, as Christians, we should naturally turn toward God in every situation of life. And James then addresses The third occasion that calls for prayer in verses 14 and 15, and that is sickness. And as we learned last week, these verses have been used, and we should say abused, as the basis of a number of unbiblical teachings. And last week I gave eight things this text is not teaching. I also addressed last week the fact that there are a few commentators, literally a few, who argue that these verses are not speaking about physical sickness and healing at all. They interpret this as spiritual restoration uh, as opposed to physical healing. However, we don't see this as referring to physical, or 
we do see this as referring to physical sickness and physical healing along with the majority of Bible commentators because this is the most common understanding of the text. So if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to get the CD or or go online and listen to to the message from last week. Let's look now at verses 14 and 15 in this third occasion that James tells us calls for prayer. Notice now verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so James once again begins with a question that directs our attention to another experience of life. He asks, is anyone among you sick? And the Greek word translated sick means to be sick, to to be ill, to be disabled, and as a result, in a state of weakness and incapacity, and, and it depicts the debilitating effect of sickness. This word is is commonly used of of bodily weakness, but it may denote any kind of weakness, be it mental, moral, or spiritual. Here the reference is primarily to physical weakness caused by illness. It is used other places in the New Testament to indicate a serious illness or condition. In John chapter 4, it described a royal official's son who was about to die. It was used of Lazarus who shortly did die in John chapter 11. It's used of Dorcas, who also died shortly after in Acts 9. And it's used of Epaphroditus, whose sickness brought him close to death. You can read about that in Philippians chapter 2. And the statement, raise him up in verse 15, and and the note that the elders are to pray over him, uh, probably imply an illness that is serious enough to cause the person to be bedridden. And this is confirmed by the fact that the individual has to call for help, which implies that he's not able, not not well enough to go and receive help. And so this tells us then that James is not speaking of something like a a headache or a toothache or the sniffles or, or a cold. He's speaking of a relatively serious condition that incapacitates a person physically so that they're confined to the house and and unable to work. And so we're talking about someone who is seriously ill and in a weakened condition. I mean, they have little strength to do anything, or perhaps they, they have a serious injury that has incapacitated. And this person's condition is serious enough that he's not able to go to the elders. And so James asks now, is anyone among you sick? Now, a couple of things here before we move on. First of all, those who argue that healing is guaranteed in the atonement in this life, and therefore no Christian should ever be sick, apparently have never read this verse. Because James, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing to believers, speaks of any of you being sick. That is an acknowledgement of the fact that Christians do get sick. And he is here encouraging them in this specific situation uh, how to seek healing. And second, There is also an extreme view that that says that this is the only divine prescription for healing. And every Christian should ask for healing in this way and should generally reject medical attention in favor of prayer. Well, that too is an unbiblical view. And let me give you a couple of reasons why. 
First of all, it limits God to working in supernatural ways. But God heals in many ways. Sometimes he heals through the body's natural processes. I mean, God created the human body with tremendous powers of recuperation. Sometimes God heals through medicines and and man-made remedies. I mean, for example, Paul told Timothy to use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, surely the great apostle would have instructed Timothy to call for the elders if that was the only God-honoring means of healing. Sometimes God heals by delivering people from underlying fears, resentments, self-preoccupation, and guilt all of which can produce physical illness. Sometimes God heals through physicians and surgeons. I mean, Jesus explicitly taught that sick people needed a physician. Answering those who questioned why he associated with sinners, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That is a clear acknowledgement that those who are sick do need a doctor. And so we should not think of the medical profession as being in any way God's second best. You know, Paul also spoke of Luke as the beloved physician with the clear inference that as a man of God, Luke was able to honorably continue his medical practice, which certainly recognizes the need of doctors among believers. God uses doctors and hospitals as a means of healing. One famous French surgeon said, the surgeon dresses the wound but it is God who heals. Another doctor wrote, healing of any kind is necessarily divine. A physician does not heal, nor medicine, nor a scientific diet, nor an improved environment, nor anything else that may be named. All creation or recreation is from God, and hence, in every instance of healing, he is the one who heals, whether he acts directly through unknown laws or indirectly through known laws. And I agree. And, and so in, in one very real sense, we would have to say that all healing is divine. Now certainly God can and he does heal miraculously, but he's not limited to healing through supernatural means. I mean, it's clear from scripture that God uses different means in healing. So whether it's uh, the complex healing ability of of the body, which is triggered by an illness, injury, or disease, whether it's simply fresh air and sunshine, or whether it's uh, vitamins and supplements, medicine, or or the knowledge and skill of, of doctors and surgeons. All of these are gifts from God, and they're all means that he uses to restore health. And we actually limit God when we confine him to the miraculous. And so James is not teaching here that this is the only way a Christian should seek healing, rejecting medical attention in favor of prayer. That is a perversion of God's word. What James speaks of here in our text doesn't need to be used in every case of sickness. I mean, this is for those who are seriously ill and incapacitated. Now, certainly, any time we're ill, we should be praying for God's healing and also using the means that he has so mercifully and graciously given to us. But even when we go to the doctor or or even when we go to the doctor, our eyes are to be on the Lord because he alone can heal. So we should thank him and acknowledge God in every healing. But back to James' question. Is anyone among you sick? 
Well, what if, uh, what if a believer in the church is seriously ill? What are they supposed to do? Well, first of all, look what James says. Look back at verse 14. Let him call for the elders of the church. That's pretty straightforward, pretty plain, simple, clear. When a believer is seriously ill, he or she is directed to call for the elders within the local church. Because the local church is the overwhelming emphasis of the New Testament epistles and is the focal point of God's program for his children today. So if someone is seriously ill, James says they're to call for the elders of the church. And this would assume, of course, that the sick person is a committed member of a local church and under the the care and authority of its leaders. And this word call means to call alongside for help. It's the word from which we get the title paraclete for the Holy Spirit. You know, he is the one called alongside to help us. And so James says, call for the elders to come alongside and help. And we should take note of the fact that James did not say, call some celebrity healer. He didn't say, call the school of supernatural ministry or their hospital healing teams or or someone who supposedly has special gifts of healing. He also did not say, call for a priest as the Catholic Douay version wrongly translates this verse. No, he simply said, call for the elders. Well, why the elders? Well, because they're the God-ordained spiritual leaders. They are the overseers and the representatives of the entire church. And when a sheep is wounded or in danger, it most naturally seeks out the aid of its shepherd, which is how elders are described in 1 Peter chapter 5. And it's also assumed that the elders of a church are men of spiritual maturity and insight, men of prayer and and compassion, etc. And so in cases of serious, debilitating illness, when someone is so sick that they're unable to leave home because they're, they're in such bad shape, in this situation, James says you are specifically to call for the elders of the church to come for special prayer. And this is given as a command. It's not merely a suggestion. This is issued as a command. And the important thing to note here is that the sick person, note that, the sick person initiates the process, not vice versa. The elders are not to be out on the hunt for someone to anoint with oil and pray for their healing. It's not how this works. As one man said, there is no warrant in Scripture for people running around with bottles of oil seeking to heal anyone and everyone. But in saying this, I also want to make sure you understand something. Don't think that this passage does not apply to you if if you are physically, you're sick, but you're physically able to come to us, the, the elders of this church. I mean, some of you have come and asked us to pray for you, and we are always happy to do it. And it's never inappropriate for anyone in the church to ask us to pray that they might be healed regardless of how serious uh, your illness may be. I mean, there are plenty of times when, when pastors and elders pray for people who are suffering from sickness or injury just in the normal course of, of shepherding the flock of God. And also don't ever conclude from this passage that only elders are to pray for the sick. I mean, don't ever think that other believers... Uh, 
of all ages can't or shouldn't pray for one another. Because if you look down at verse 16, James exhorts all believers to pray for one another. So let others help you bear your burden. You know, let God's people pray for you. Let, let God bless you in the context of sharing your life with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be secretive about your illnesses. I mean, you shouldn't go off to the hospital without telling the church about it. You're, you're, you're not to keep quiet so as, you know, not to bother anyone. Listen, the church exists to bother about you. When you're ill... Well, you should call for the prayers of the church. We have a, a, a prayer chain, and our men on Saturday mornings pray. So, so when you're ill, you should call for the prayers of the church. Let the fact that you belong to a local body of believers actually be demonstrated by other members of the body actually praying for you and, and ministering to you in other ways. But that's not what James is talking about in verses 14 and 15. What James is dealing with here in our text is a significant different situation. This is not merely someone who is sick. This person is seriously ill, incapacitated, perhaps confined to bed. And in this specific situation, James says, call for the elders. Call for the elders to come to your bedside for special prayer. You know, let the elders know of your condition. And it's important to say that uh, because sometimes you get the idea that people think that pastors and elders are omniscient. Uh, We're not. And so you don't expect pastors and elders to know when you're seriously ill and in need of prayer if you don't tell them. And we don't know about illnesses and sickness and hospitalizations and unless we're told. And, and so often we learn about it after the fact. And because of that, sometimes, uh, you know, people have uh, pity parties because they feel ignored and neglected because they were waiting for the pastor or elders to call when we didn't even know you were sick. And we won't know unless you or a family member informs us and not a month after uh, the occurrence. (laughs) And so as James instructs us, call for the elders. You know, the specific situation he is addressing here in our text is not for the members of the church to do for one another. In this specific situation, James says, call for the elders of the church. This is not for the members of the church to do for one another. James is clear that this is the responsibility of the elders, the spiritual overseers of the local church. And I hope someone isn't thinking, well, I'll do this if I want to do it. Well, uh, you can do that, but a couple of things. One, it demonstrates uh, the rebellion in your heart against the word of God, and you should never expect God to bless something that you're doing that is outside of his word. The seriously sick person is to call for the elders of the church, but you know, sadly, this this rarely happens today. It rarely happens, even in cases of serious illness. Well, why is that? Well, probably a number of reasons. 
Number one, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, perhaps because people have not been taught on the subject or perhaps they've been taught incorrectly. Number two, there's a measure of humility involved in asking someone to help you or in sharing your, uh, your illness with someone. I mean, there's a, a certain amount of, of vulnerability and in sharing that and asking someone to pray for you. And so perhaps sometimes pride gets in the way. Another reason is that people are afraid it, it might not be successful. They may not see the results they desire. But you see, we have to remember that the outcome is always up to God. The elders aren't called to be miracle workers. I mean, we have no gift of healing. God has simply commanded us in his word to pray. And he's the one who hears prayers and and heals the hurts of his people. I mean, we we are called to pray, but it's God who acts. It's God who heals. And fourthly, I think, uh, and perhaps maybe this is the predominant reason why people shy away from this, and that's because of the abuses we see from uh, the world, the word of faith, hyper-charismatic, Bethel-type groups. And so pastors and, and churches and people are concerned that they or, or, you know, we might appear to be charismatic. But this is simple, clear instruction from the word of God on how this is to be done properly and in order. This is how it's to be done in a God-honoring way. And this ought to be part of every congregation's body life. So, if you have a a life-threatening or a serious debilitating illness or injury that incapacitates you or, you know, prevents you from working or fulfilling your other duties, then you should call for the elders. And remember, it is up to you to initiate that. And this doesn't mean, you know, go down and call us for your neighbor down the street who we don't know and have never seen. Again, remember, this is for those who are members of a local body calling for the elders, the leadership of their local body, to come and pray for them. I mean, we will gladly pray for your neighbor or your cousin or your cousin's cousin as long as You know, they give you permission to share that with our uh, prayer chain. We'll be more than glad to pray for them and pray for them on Saturday morning. But this specifically is elders ministering to those who are part of the local body that God has called them to oversee. And once they receive the call, well, then the elders have a very special responsibility to respond to the request. They're to go to the person's home or perhaps uh, to the person's hospital room and they're commanded to do two things. Look what James says. Look back at verse 14. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So first of all, they're to pray over the sick person. James says, let them pray over him. So prayer is the primary ministry that the elders perform on behalf of the one who has called them. But what's unusual here is that we don't typically read in the New Testament about praying over someone. In fact, this is the only place in the entire New Testament where over is used in conjunction with praying for someone. I mean, you can pray for someone and not necessarily pray over them. And this word over suggests that this person is bedridden, unable to initiate any movement toward other people or the elders of the church. 
So the phrase over him seems best taken literally as picturing the elders standing by the bed of the sick and extending their hands over him while praying. But it's also possible that the phrase refers to laying hands on the person being prayed for as a way of of establishing a physical connection. But whether the elders lay their hands on, on the sick as an expression of their oneness and concern for him, or whether they simply gather around him to pray for him, the primary concern is, again, that they pray. And, of course, we understand the importance of prayer. And we know that healing comes only from God. And so if it's healing that we're seeking, then what do we have to do? We have to go to the source, don't we? We're to seek God in prayer. And so first of all, the the first thing the elders are to do is to pray over the sick person. Secondly, look what James says. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So anointing him with oil. With oil. The elders are to pray over him, anointing him with oil. Now, in the Greek text, uh, it, it actually combines these two actions, like one accompanying the other. So, anointing was probably at the same time as the praying. Uh, however, it is also possible it was done uh, just prior to the prayer. But more important than the timing of the act is its meaning. You know, what does this mean? What what is the significance of this anointing with oil? Well, first of all, we need to understand that that there is is nothing magical about the anointing with oil. The oil had no healing power in itself. I mean, the, the, the main emphasis in this verse is on the prayer that accompanies the anointing, not the oil. And this is clear from the next verse where James affirms the power of prayer, saying, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. He doesn't say, and the anointing oil will save the sick. No, it's the prayer. So there's nothing special or magical about the oil. So what does it mean? Well, the practice of anointing with oil is mentioned only one other time in the New Testament, in Mark chapter 6, verse 13. And we read that they, speaking of the twelve apostles, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Well, that's great. But unfortunately, Mark doesn't give us any more of an explanation for the anointing than James does. And there are several interpretations as to what this means. The term used here for oil, uh, spoken of in, in the anointing, originally referred to olive oil. And so we must assume that this is what's spoken of here because olive oil was the most common type of oil available in that day. Some believe James recommended it for its medicinal value. And certainly olive oil was frequently used in the ancient world for medicinal purposes. I mean, we see this in the account of the Good Samaritan who administered oil and wine to the wounds of the injured traveler. And this may be the reason James used the particular Greek word uh, translated here to anoint, which emphasizes the actual pouring, the actual action of pouring. There's another word translated to anoint, which is usually used when the, the purpose of the anointing is religious or symbolic. However, the the meaning of these two words often overlap, and significantly, neither word is used with reference to medicinal purposes in the Septuagint. 
And so while it is true that olive oil was used medicinally to cleanse and dress wounds in the first century, oil did not have medical application to all the diseases known at the time. And that is not the purpose for its use here. And also, I mean, we should think that, think about this, if the purpose of the oil was strictly medicinal, then why, why in the world was it necessary for the elders to come and, and do the anointing? Wouldn't others, wouldn't family or, or friends of the suffering indiv- or the suffering individual himself have already done this to alleviate his suffering? Well, of course, the answer to that is yes. Others uh, see this as being sacramental. You know, they view the oil as, as consecrated so that it conveys grace when put upon the person. And this is the Roman Catholic practice of extreme unction, part of the last rites, in which they believe that a dying person's remaining sins are are wiped away through the priest administering a special consecrated oil. Well, that practice is clearly unbiblical, and it it certainly is not the purpose that James had in mind. James doesn't mention consecrated oil. It was just plain olive oil. Neither does James mention anyone dying. He gave this procedure for restoration to health, not preparation for death. There there is no sacramental function in the oil. Well, so what does it mean? Well, the most logical explanation is that the oil has a religious or spiritual significance in this passage. It represents the Holy Spirit in his ministry of consecration, whereby an individual or some object is set aside to God's service. In other words, the anointing here is a physical action with a symbolic significance. I mean, for example, oil was used often in the Old Testament for both kings and priests in setting them apart unto the Lord. When David was set apart as king, Samuel anointed him with oil. And the oil implied that the person anointed was consecrated for whatever the Lord had purposed for them to do. They belonged to the Lord and would serve at the Lord's pleasure. And in the same way, we are probably to understand the anointing uh, of a sick person with oil uh, during the time of prayer as the consecrating or the setting apart of this person for God's special attention. It indicates that this person is set apart to the Lord for his work in their lives. And the oil may indicate their submission to the will of God, whether in healing or continued affirmity. You know, they they were under God's special attention and care. But the emphasis, again, and the greater priority is on praying, not the anointing with oil. I mean, I... I once knew a couple who carried a small bottle of olive oil with them all the time just in case they came across someone sick so they could anoint them with oil. That's not what the Scriptures are telling us. That's not what James is telling us. Yes, we're to always be praying for one another in times of illness, but we're not instructed to anoint with oil except in this specific situation. And when that is deemed necessary, the person who is ill or their family is to call for the elders of the church who will do the anointing and the praying. And James also tells us, if you look back at verse 14, that the anointing with oil is to be done, what? In the name of the Lord. 
in the name of the Lord. Apparently, this was said by one of the elders as the oil was being applied. And the Lord most naturally means the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, some people use the, the name of the Lord as though it were a, a good luck charm for, for their healing declarations. And you perhaps have seen those who believe they have a gift of healing using the name of the Lord like this. I mean, they just keep commanding or, or declaring or, or claiming the healing and interjecting or, or tagging on the name of Jesus throughout the whole process. That is a misuse and a superstitious use of the name of our Lord. Praying in the name of the Lord means so much more than a mere mechanical repetition of a phrase. No, praying in the name of the Lord implies that the elders are acting in dependence upon Christ and his authority, praying according to his will, and this in turn means accepting God's sovereign plan and purposes, submitting to his will in all things. And what are the results of this? Well, look what James tells us in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, this immediately raises at least two questions. You know, what is the prayer of faith? And is James guaranteeing healing in every case? Let's take the first one. You know, what is the prayer of faith? I mean, does this mean that you, you work very hard, you know, to you just got to kind of muster up this faith, a, a, a mountain of faith to believe the Lord for healing, and when you get that all worked up, you pray? And if you have enough faith, you or the person you're praying for will then be healed. But if you aren't healed, well, you didn't have enough faith, you didn't work it up high enough, you didn't pray in faith, and so nothing happened. And there are many people who hold this view, which is not only unbiblical and therefore false, it's extremely cruel. But to tell someone they didn't have enough faith and that is extremely cruel, and it leads to guilt and shame, and it just leads to people trying to muster up more faith. One commentator wrote, I have heard accusations that children have died because parents or elders didn't exercise enough faith. It makes God out to be exceedingly cruel. He is portrayed as a God who allows innocent children to die because some adults' faith rated only 2.3 on a faith scale when God needs at least 2.5 to perform a miracle. While faith is important, faith does not heal. God heals. And God has a record for doing great things in response to minimal mustard seed size. You know, the cruel assertion made by some people that anybody can be miraculously healed as long as they have enough faith is just plainly and biblically not true. And so the prayer of faith is not the, the mustering up of some super amount of faith or by claiming something that God has never promised or designed to do. Secondly, some people argue that the prayer of faith is a it's a special, you know, subjective assurance that is given to the elders that God will heal in this situation. You know, but the problem with that is that it's very easy to be mistaken. 
Because we can convince ourselves that the Lord is going to do something, but this is not faith. Might not be nothing. Might not be anything more than wishful thinking. And if you give someone false hope that God will heal, but He doesn't heal, you've just added to the person's misery. I mean, do the elders, or or does anyone, for that matter, know positively when God is going to heal someone? Well, no, of course not. And we don't know because of the deceitfulness of our own hearts and our own hearts' desires. Then what is the prayer of faith? Well, the phrase, the prayer of faith, occurs only here in the New Testament. The phrase, the prayer, is an unusual term which speaks of a strong, fervent wish or petition. And the words of faith describe the prayer. It is the prayer of faith. It is a strong, fervent prayer offered in faith by the elders over the sick. But that still doesn't really define what it is, does it? I can tell you this, the prayer of faith or the prayer offered in faith is not some higher form of prayer. It's no special kind of faith uh, that's needed here. There are no techniques or secrets involved in, in praying the prayer of faith. You see, the general teaching of Scripture is that all prayer must be offered in faith, right? I mean, James taught in chapter 1 when praying for wisdom to ask in faith with no doubting. And that's the general of that's a general teaching of Scripture. All prayer must be offered in faith. Every prayer should be a prayer of faith because we should not ask anything of God unless we believe that He is able to grant it. One man wrote, The elders of the church, speaking about the prayer of faith, he said, The elders of the church are to gather with the sick person and pray in faith for healing. That does not mean they have faith in their prayers. It does not mean that they have faith in healing. And it does not mean that they have faith in faith. It means they have faith in God. The elders are to pray with absolute confidence that God hears, God cares, and God has the power to heal if he wills to do so. And so the prayer of faith, uh, quite simply, is sincere, fervent, strong, compassionate, you know, passionately desiring healing, uh, fully confident in God, fully committed to His will, and then waiting to see what He will do. R.C. Sproul said, The real prayer of faith is the prayer that trusts God no matter whether the answer is yes or no. Now, the second question this verse raises is James guaranteeing healing in every case. Look back at the verse. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So is he guaranteeing healing in every case? Because that's what the verse appears to be saying. You know, some resolve this by saying that the gift of miraculous healing was limited to the apostolic age, and so this doesn't even apply anymore. Well, the problem with that is that the gift of healing is not in view here. James is not even talking about that. The gift of healing has absolutely nothing to do with this. Obviously, God can and does heal miraculously in every age when it's His will to do so. And some then go to the other extreme and claim this text does guarantee physical healing, that it's always God's will to heal. But that's not true either. 
And while God undoubtedly can and does heal people from sickness, it is clearly not his will, uh, always his will to do so. And we know this from Scripture, and we know it from our own experience. And we pray for people all the time who don't get better. Sometimes people die. But the fact of the matter is, if people were always healed after prayer, then Christians would never die. Right? I mean... (laughs) But believers are still mortal men and women. And no person can be so, well, maybe. I was going to say no person can be so self-deluded as to think that James 5.15 guarantees immunity from a final illness that, that leads to the end of our earthly pilgrimage, which comes to every single one of us and comes to some sooner than they desire. I mean, the 100% mortality rate of humanity testifies to the fact that all of us will eventually die from either sickness, injury, or old age. And consider the Apostle Paul, who had been given the gift of healing. He didn't heal his friend Epaphroditus from an illness that almost caused his death in Philippians 2. On another occasion, he left Trophimus sick in Miletus. And then he told Timothy to take a little wine for uh, the sake of his stomach. Why didn't Paul pray in faith so that his friends were healed instantaneously? Well, there's no doubt that Paul did pray and pray fervently. But Paul learned from his own experience when he pleaded for the removal of the thorn in his flesh that God doesn't always heal us as we wish. God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Loved ones, this verse does not guarantee healing in every case. But someone is going to say, well, that's what the verse says. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. See, I told you that's exactly what it says. You know, this verse would be so much easier if it read, and the prayer of faith may save the one who is sick, and the Lord may raise him up. But that's not what it says. It says, will save. And it does seem to present healing as a guaranteed result of the prayer of faith. It doesn't mention the possibility of failure, does it? And if this was the only verse we had in the Bible that speaks to this issue, then that would be correct. But this is a perfect example of why you have to interpret the Bible by the Bible. I mean, this is how people get into a lot of trouble. You know, they may read their Bible, they may know where verses are found throughout the Bible, but they don't know the theology behind it. And so they find a verse in the Old Testament, and they build their theology on that, even though the New Testament completely explains what that's all about. So this is the example, a perfect example of why you have to interpret the Bible by the Bible. The understanding of James 5.15 depends on the condition the Lord Jesus put on having prayer answered. You say, what is that? In John 14, 13, Jesus said this, whatever you ask in my name, that is according to my will, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, again, according to his will, he will give it to you. And then in 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask 
anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. You see, the prayer of faith comes from a faith in Almighty God who sovereignly carries out his will. Nothing is beyond him. God can heal anyone anytime he wills, and he does, he heals today. But he does so as he wills in every circumstance, working all things for our good and his glory. I mean, for example, Jesus was sovereign as to the people he healed. He didn't uh, go everywhere and heal everybody. He allowed many people to remain ill in spite of having the power to heal them. He healed according to his will, and he does the same today from heaven. He heals men and women uh, according to his will for his glory. And you and I, or no one else for that matter, is going to be able to alter God's will by our faith or by claiming something, again, that God has not promised to do. As one man put it, if God does not will something, neither medicine nor prayer will accomplish the results which we want. We cannot alter God's will by our persistence nor even by our faith. So two Christians, two committed Christians, fall ill. Both of them call for the elders of the church. They are prayed over and anointed with oil. One dies, the other is healed. Why? Because God willed to heal the one and not the other. You see, God and his sovereignty sees differently than we do. And there are times when he decides not to heal someone. We don't know why. I mean, perhaps sometimes God is more glorified in the way that we handle a sickness or a crisis than if, we, we were to, if, he, than if he were to take that painful circumstance away. Perhaps sometimes God makes us well in a deeper way by giving us a peace that surpasses all understanding, which will guard our hearts and minds, or, or a trust that, that just defies explanation. And God may heal in the ultimate sense. You see, we mistakenly see death as the final defeat of our prayers for healing. But for the believer, death is not defeat. No, it is the ultimate, final, and perfect healing. And the fact is, God's wisdom is superior to ours. And his definition of well is also superior to ours. What James is telling us here is that the prayer of faith, which we pray, is always faith and trust in God, whose will is supreme and best. And when a particular request is according to his will, we have Jesus' own promise that if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And to ask in Jesus' name uh, means not simply to speak his name, but to take into account his will. And only those requests offered in his will are granted. So prayer for healing offered in the confidence that God will answer that prayer does bring healing, but only when it is God's will to heal. And when it is his will to heal, James tells us, look back at verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The word translated will save means to restore. It means to preserve alive. It means to rescue, 
or deliver from imprisonment or affliction. And it was commonly used in the New Testament of physical healing. It could be translated, will make the sick person well. That's how the NIV has it. And it refers to his physical restoration. He will be rescued, delivered from his physical illness or disability. And James says in the rest of verse 15 there, and the Lord will raise him up. The Lord will raise him up. As the Lord over the lives of his people, he heals according to his will. He will raise him up. That virtually repeats will save in the previous statement, meaning that the sick person will be healed, raised up from his sickbed. I mean, ultimately, God does the healing. He raises up. It's not the oil. It's not the elders. It's not the elders' prayer. But it is the Lord himself who does the healing because he is Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. Now notice the last part of the verse. And here James adds, And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. If, that's a big if, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. James says if, and this is important. It's very important. Because all too often we are prone to assume that sin, is the cause of someone's sickness and suffering. It can be. It can be. I mean, physical illness may be a direct result of someone's sin. Sexually transmitted diseases, AIDS, alcoholism, and drug addiction are a few obvious ones. So sin can be a direct result of someone's, or illness can be a direct result of someone's sin. And of course, the Bible teaches that some sickness and even death may come upon believers as a result of God's fatherly, loving discipline, Acts 5 and 1 Corinthians 11. But this is not always the case. And Jesus taught the disciples that it was neither the sin of the blind man or his parents that caused his blindness there in John chapter 9. The fact is, most human sickness, while not outside of God's divine will, is simply the result of living in a broken, sinful world where everything has been tainted and corrupted by sin. So James says, if, if he has committed sin, I mean, the possibility should be considered. And so what's he telling us? Simply this, that when sickness does come, the, the ill believer should examine himself before the Lord to determine if sin might be the cause of the sickness. And you know, during, during a time of, of illness, there, there is an unusual amount of heart searching, especially a prolonged illness. You know, this, this time of searching the heart, of, of asking the Lord to show us if there's any wicked way within us. And if sin is present, if the Lord, you know, shows you that. Well, the good news is, is the Bible offers hope, right? I mean, it assures the sick person that, that forgiveness is available. Because once he or she recognizes their sin and they they confess it to the Lord, he's ready and willing to forgive our sin. He doesn't forgive excuses. He does not forgive excuses. 
But he most certainly does forgive sin that is confessed. We have, you know, Jesus' word on it, right? 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so even in cases where sin is a direct cause, God is gracious and merciful and, and ready and willing to forgive. And you know, when God forgives us of our sin, he never reminds us of our sin, never drudges up the past, you know, never drudges up the past to throw it in our face today. Now, God never reminds us of our sin because when God cancels sin, he will never remember it. God chooses never to remember our sin. So we stand before him as if we had never sinned at all. In Christ, he sees us as perfectly righteous. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, the same God who heals us physically also sets us free from the sins that, that bind us. And so what does all of this mean for us? Simply that as believers, we need to recognize that God is the ruler of the universe. And there is nothing too hard for him. And he can heal any illness at any stage. He can restore broken bones, reverse devastating handicaps, and erase a disease from a body. I mean, God is able to help us no matter what our problem. And so we're to trust in him. We must trust God's sovereign wisdom and grace. I mean, he will and and does answer our prayers. And even when we don't get the answer we desire or expect, true faith trusts God's perspective and decision above our own. I mean, we need to trust God fully, completely, and, and do what he says. And so, when any of you are sick, I mean, please let the church know so we can pray for you. And if and when any of you are struck down by a life-threatening illness, or in the case of any serious debilitating illness or injury, then call for the elders of the church to come and pray for you, anointing you with oil, that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, if that is according to his sovereign will and purpose. Faith begins when we are willing to do what what God tells us to do. We are never wrong when we do what God tells us to do according to his word. And we can never see God work in great ways if we aren't willing to give him the opportunity. And so as I said at the closing of last week's message, as Christians, we should find ourselves naturally turning towards God in in every situation of life. If we're suffering, we should see that as a call to prayer and a deeper and more intimate relationship with the Lord. If we're cheerful, then we need to lift up our voices in, in praise singing praise to the Lord and and glorifying and worshiping Him. And as we learned today, if you're sick, you know, if you are seriously ill, 
And then according to James, call for the elders to come for this special time of prayer for the Lord's healing in your life. And we will pray and we will see what the Lord may do because we trust him, don't we? I mean, all of life, every circumstance is an invitation for us to enter into God's presence and to know that the Lord, that he is our God. He is our greatest joy. He is our greatest source of strength in times of difficulty. And he is the one we turn to, should always turn to when we feel like life is caving in around us. And may that be true in each one of our lives. Amen. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Run.